You are listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Hypertension, is the best therapy changing? Welcome to the Clinician Roundtable. I am Dr. Matthew Sorrentino from the cardiology section at the University of Chicago Medical Center, your host on Clinician Roundtable. With me today is Dr. Henry Black, a clinical professor of internal medicine at the New York University School of Medicine. Dr. Black is internationally known hypertensive expert who has worked with a number of different groups, including the Joint National Committee, to help us determine guidelines for the treatment, detection, and evaluation of patients who have hypertension. Today, what we're going to talk about is how to choose the proper medication for a patient and how some of the paradigms are changing. So I thought first that I would review with Dr. Black the Joint National Committee guidelines for uncomplicated hypertension. What are the medicines that are suggested we use first in this uncomplicated patient? Well, right now, and we could, we could talk about whether there really is an uncomplicated hypertensive. They all have something almost all do. But in any case, someone without what we call the compelling indication, which I'll, which I'll discuss in, in a minute, we recommended in JNC7 that a thiazide-like diuretic or a thiazide-type diuretic ought to be the first choice for most of those people. We also said that beta blockers, angiotensin receptor blockers, ACE inhibitors, or calcium antagonists were all alternatives in some patients. And even in some patients who had stage 1 hypertension, that is 140 to 159 or 90 to 99, might be appropriate candidates to start with two drugs. If you were over 160 or over 100, then we recommended beginning with two drugs, one of which was a thiazide diuretic. Is there a best diuretic? I know that some of the early trials uh, used chlorothalidone, although it seems that hydrochlorothiazide is, is more commonly used. Is there an advantage of one thiazide brand over another? Look, everything else, when we make a choice within a a therapeutic class, the doctor or clinician ought to use what he or she is familiar with. Now, hydrochlorothiazide, which has been around even longer than chlorothalidone, is the agent that people use most frequently. Chlorothalidone is more powerful, probably on a milligram to milligram basis, it's twice as powerful at lowering blood pressure, but it's also a little more likely to cause potassium loss and hypokalemia, which is a concern. The, the reason that the NIH has used chlorothalidone in most of its studies has to do with the Mr. Fit trial. At that time, the clinics were offered the choice of starting with chlorothalidone or starting with hydrochlorothiazide as their drug. The ones that picked hydrochlorothiazide were doing worse even than placebo, and everybody was switched to chlorothalidone about midway through the study, and every, all the benefits were, were accrued. So that's why it was used in SHEP, and that's why it was used in Allhat. Now, we're fond of chlorothalidone, having been part of both of those studies, and we used it very frequently in, in, in our clinic at Rush before I left. One of the advantages of hydrochlorothiazide right now is it's the only diuretic representative in almost all of the fixed-dose combinations currently available, with the exception of tenoretic or regratin, which are agents that we don't use very much. So if you're going to consider using a fixed-dose combination, you don't have chlorothalidone as an option. We tried it at our Rush site to see what would happen if we would switch patients who were not at goal to chlorothalidone from hydrochlorothiazide, 10 milligram dose. And we actually did this in about 30 of our patients and, and reduced blood pressure in additional 10 over 6, which is very significant. A chlorothalidone is longer acting, and that may be part of the reason. Right now, I think you should use what you're familiar with. 
Let's talk a little bit about beta blockers, which are being reevaluated currently. I know the JNC uh, put them in that list of first-line medications, but a number of groups, especially our colleagues in the United Kingdom, have been questioning beta blockers, especially atenolol, as a first-line uh, agent. Can you describe what this controversy is and if we should be using them as first-line agents? Excellent question, and I think very, very pertinent to what's going on right now. It was the Scandinavians who had been the biggest proponents of beta blockers back in the 60s and 70s. And in JNC3 in 1984, we added beta blockers to the first-line options with, with diuretics. Now, in 2004, there was a very nice meta-analysis published from Sweden, which in fact suggested that atenolol was not as good for most outcomes, even as placebo. They then extended this further to include other beta blockers, and then they compared beta blockers or atenolol as well to other antihypertensives. Now, they were using clinical trial data, and very rarely do we enter people into clinical trials who are much younger than 55 or 60. So the recommendations from, from the United Kingdom was that for hypertensive patients over the age of 55, that beta blockers not be considered a first-line option. Not to say that it wouldn't be good for, for, for those younger than 55 or younger than 50, but we simply haven't studied that. Uh, there was a second meta-analysis done when there was enough information available that for people over 60, it wasn't as good, but for, for patients under 60, uh, the, there wasn't anything really to choose between it. Now, we do use beta blockers if people have so-called compelling indications. That would include heart failure, coronary disease with angina, and other indications where there's very clear evidence of specific benefit from beta blockers. So it's, it's very important for clinicians to keep the, you know, those differences in mind. As an antihypertensive in patients who don't have a compelling indication, we would put beta blockers in our second tier, not so for those who have compelling indications. You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. My guest today is Dr. Henry Black, and we're talking about the choice of medications for a hypertensive patient. We just discussed a little bit about beta blockers, but I've noticed that on the guidelines, the alpha beta blocker combinations are not considered first-line drugs, and yet these are very effective antihypertensives. Where is the role for the alpha beta blockers such as labetalol and carvedilol? Well, we don't have too much clinical trial data in hypertension for either of those agents. We have more, in fact, for heart failure. Now, alpha and beta blockers are much gentler metabolically than more traditional beta blockers, probably because they cause vasodilation. I'm in favor of those for the most part. Labetalol is a twice-a-day drug, and we have many once-a-day options, so I think that's why it's lost some favor. And carvedilol has been a twice-a-day drug, and we soon expect to see a once-a-day preparation. With those vasodilating activities, that would give it a certain advantage over more traditional beta blockers. But unfortunately, most of these recommendations come from well-done, long, randomized clinical trials where we can really evaluate drugs against each other. And there isn't enough data from alpha and beta blockers to be able to put them as a separate class. I know there's been some concern that all beta blockers aren't created equal, specifically atenolol being possibly different. Certainly in the heart failure arena, there are certain beta blockers that have been shown to be beneficials and others that either haven't or haven't been studied. Do you see in the future that there may be certain beta blockers that are preferred compared to others? Well, certainly atenolol, which is still very widely sold, I believe it's the 17th largest generic agent in the United States with close to $400 million in sales, just doesn't stack up very well to other drugs 
and in some some places it doesn't even do as well as placebo in, for for some outcomes. But yet it's still it's still widely used because it's inexpensive and widely available. Now there are two new beta blockers coming around. I, I mentioned earlier about the long-acting carvedilol preparation, and then there's a drug called nabivalol, which is widely sold in Europe that seems to stimulate nitric oxide and also has some vasodilatory properties. Those two beta blockers will be our, if you will, our third or fourth generation. But again, we still we still need trials to see whether or not they are really better. I'd like to switch briefly to calcium channel blockers because uh, this class also has had some controversy. There was a concern that in certain groups they may actually increase cardiovascular risk. Is this still an issue, or are calcium channel blockers appropriate first-line agents for uncomplicated hypertension? I think they clearly are. That controversy was created back in the mid-'90s based on case control studies and incomplete information on uh, from, I think, poorly done analyses. When calcium channel blockers, especially amlodipine, have been compared to other agents, they stack up quite nicely, with the exception of uh, the precipitation of heart failure, which does seem to be a risk with those agents. But as far as lowering blood pressure effectively, especially at preventing stroke, they seem to be extremely effective. They don't have any, any metabolic side effects that we can tell, and they seem to work equally well regardless of demography. So you don't have to make adjustments for ethnicity or for age, which you have to do with almost every other of the drugs we have. Now, calcium antagonists are kind of interesting because they're really two basic categories, and unfortunately, they are tend to be lumped together. Dihydropyridines, of which amlodipine is the, is the prototype, causes edema, may in fact stimulate the sympathetic nervous system a little bit, may increase proteinuria, and the non-dihydropyridines, of which we have two categories of rapamil and doltiazem, have very opposite effects. They slow the heart rate they actually reduce proteinuria. And we found in our RUSH clinic that we could use them together. We called that dual calcium antagonist therapy. And we had a very nice response when we infected that together. That would seem anti-intuitive and you shouldn't really use two drugs together, but in fact, they really are very different. And so I think they have really reestablished their place as a tier one of first-line therapy, although that is not necessarily reflected in how doctors use them. Now, what about the use of verapamil and diltiazem in the elderly, since they also have effects on the conduction system of the heart? Is there danger of using these agents in the elderly, especially if they already have conduction system abnormalities on their EKG? Yeah, that's, that's a real concern, and that's one of the groups that I would not use them, and I wouldn't use them together with beta blockers. People sometimes forget that because both agents slow the heart rate and can cause conduction system abnormalities. But the INVEST study, which used verapamil, had perfectly good results, even in the older age groups, and seem to have a, a reduced incidence of new diabetes, but compared to atenolol. So uh, I think it's a concern in people with conduction abnormalities, but if they're not present, then I, I wouldn't be worried about it. And then to repeat again the recommendations for the patients who are already in stage 2 hypertension, so we're greater than 20 systolic, greater than 10 diastolic from the goal, your recommendation is to start right away with two agents or a combination agent at that point? Yes, we do. And I think part of the reason was the observation from all hat and from value that what happens in the first three months can be pretty critical. It was observed first in all hat and then clearly in value that in a high-risk individual, if you don't lower blood pressure fairly promptly, and I'm not talking hours or days now, I'm talking months, that you actually have an increased risk of stroke in particular. That was seen in those two trials. And I think that's a new way to look at it. So people who are at high risk or have blood pressures that high, you're not likely to get to go with a single agent. 
and there's really relatively little risk of excessive blood pressure drops. That's quite unusual. The question about, about two drugs that's most interesting to me is whether one of them should be a thiazide-type diuretic, as we recommended. The ASCOT study was the first attempt to you know, look at this a somewhat different way. Uh, this was a trial of two regimens, one that began with a tenolol or beta blocker and one that began with amlodipine, a calcium antagonist. To the calcium antagonist, an ACE inhibitor, perindopril, was added if patients were in a goal. And that was the case in about 70 to 75%. And to a tenolol, a diuretic was added, and there were somewhat more of the volunteers who needed both of those. At the end of the trial, the group that had the two newer agents together, amlodipine plus an ACE inhibitor, did better in almost all outcomes than those who had a, a tenolol plus diuretic. I want to thank Dr. Henry Black, who has been our guest, and we have been discussing hypertension, the best therapy. I am Dr. Matthew Sorrentino. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.